0: you're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
1: Yeah, there's something about Netflix, Scott, I think, right? Yep, that's right. All right. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. And for Kelly again, here's what's coming up. Stocks are higher once again today, though we are off the best levels. The Dow, though, up still 1,800 points from Thursday's post-inflation low. But can this rally really be trusted? Not everybody is a believer. Oh, a guy named Bill Gates is going to join us. Yes, that Bill Gates. We'll talk to him about the companies he is investing in, where the money is going to fight climate change, polio, etc. Plus, with the midterm elections approaching, is it really all about gas and groceries? You can expect to hear those words a lot the next three weeks as money and politics, they really start to collide heading toward Election Day. We're going to get to all of that and more of it. First, let's get a quick check on the markets as well. No DOM today, so you're stuck with me doing it. Stocks are adding yesterday's big gains, but they are off the highs right now still. Dow up 269. The NASDAQ, it is up 7 tenths of 1%. Again, we've lost some steam. Will we end higher? Well, you got to stay tuned to the market to find out. We've come down a bit. Still, though, we are up. All right, lots of so-called activist firms making moves. I don't like to use that term because I don't know what they're activating for. But still, third point, taking a stake in Colgate-Palmolive. And Starboard Value Partners taking a stake in Salesforce. Starboard's founder, Jeff Smith, saying the company is undervalued due to its subpar mix of both growth and profitability. Salesforce up 4.5%. Colgate-Palmolive up just a touch. Financials are up again today. Goldman Sachs, the big leader there, following an earnings beat. And that firm also confirming their sort of internal reorganization plan. Homebuilders, they are higher as well. Now, homebuilder sentiment this morning, it tanked it's at the lowest reading since august of 2020 or 2012 but maybe as bad as it was it wasn't as bad as the market thought because <laughs> home building stocks despite that data being at a decade low they're actually all higher right now LGI Lennar D.R. Horton and KB Home as well oil by the way taking another leg lower it is off by more than 3% right now back to 8318 a barrel the physical market still a little higher than that remember there's kind of a disconnect between what we show you here And delivering an actual barrel of oil. But the price of oil is now below where it was before the OPEC meeting two weeks ago. What do you think about that? All right, we'll get more on energy, I'm sure, throughout the show. But today's moves in stocks may make it easier to forget where we were only a couple of days ago. On Thursday, the Dow and the S&P fell to their lowest level since November of 2020. NASDAQ to lows that you have not seen since July of 2020. But if you look at the NASDAQ since that drop, we are more than 7% off the lows, and Wall Street is taking notice. Christina Partsonevel has been taking notice as well, and she is here with a look at what they're calling the bull case for tech. Christina.
0: Ryan, I want to reiterate your word trust as there's still a lot of debate on the longevity of this rally, but all three indices are now tracking for their first monthly gain since July. And you can see the NASDAQ is up just uh, under a percent right now. But several bullish tech themes stand out in recent analyst commentary. And I say very recent, right? Because we could be quick to forget. Companies have already gotten lower like AMD. Jani Research says the oversold conditions may imply more upside. Wedbush says foreign exchange fluctuations are already priced in. And Bernstein says that the China export ban on high tech chips only affects a small segment of chipmaker chip revenue. And of course you've got holiday season around the quarter, which usually bodes well for buying. Of course, the fiscal policy, the Fed, takes a while to be felt in the economy. But the big question for investors watching right now, where should you look? City says software and services hold up better in periods of volatility and recommend Intuit and Workiva. And you can see Intuit is up four tenths of a percent. And then despite the layoffs announcement earlier today, Goldman Sachs says Microsoft is still more resilient in downturns, yet that stock price is uh, hovering just um, below the negative right now, just uh, barely lower. And not everything is a buy. Semiconductor names are mixed with the largest names negative today. Deutsche Bank just cut several price targets for Qualcomm, Marvell, NVIDIA, and AMD. However, they still have a buy on several of those names. Whether you believe it or not, tech is helping lead this rally, Brian.
1: You know, yeah, it's like Microsoft Teams. It just keeps popping. You can't get rid of it. It just keeps popping up. Oh, and by the way, we have a guy named Bill Gates on later in the show. Oh, wow,
0: how perfect. How perfect. You can tell him how often you use the Teams program.
1: Which is hopefully zero. Christina, thank you very much. <laughs> God, All right, to speak you. the recent moves higher, your next guest is Stanic Pat. He's not selling any rallies, but he's also not buying the dips. He's sticking with quality names until the dust settles. Welcome in Jeff Crumpleman. He is chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors. So, Jeff, you're not buying. You're not buying, You're not selling. You're just, like, sitting in a chair with, like, a lamp behind you.
2: Well, I'm doing more than uh, sitting in a chair with with lighting, uh, you know, improvements maybe that are needed. But, um, yeah, we we feel that the appropriate thing to do here is know what you own and uh, assemble your buy list so you're ready to see if this thing has legs and is real. Uh, It fizzled in the summer. It sure felt good when we had that rally. There are a lot of signs that the market wants to bottom. We like the shift in leadership that's more risk-on than it was. We like the breadth that we're seeing. But I think until you know you don't fight the Fed, until investors truly see the data that we think we see, which is calming inflation and the forward-looking inflation data, and uh, comfort that the Fed indeed uh, can pause after a couple more hikes, until that happens, I think that uh, you're, you're, it's just too risky to say, I want to aggressively add to stock exposure.
1: Well given that we know the data it's something and I'll misquote it I'll butcher it but you'll get direction I'll be directionally correct as they say if you sure. miss the just the best two or three days a year over the, you know 20 years your your returns are cut down by half or something like that so you're advising I would imagine your clients stay invested D- don't sell Absolutely. right i mean because then you you're, you're going to miss like what we've seen the last couple of days which is a you know a 7% rally for tech
2: That's absolutely right. So what we did coming into the year, we really did think that we were likely to see a correction. And it wasn't just one of those just cause statements that that can happen anytime. We saw the transitions that were underway on the part of the Fed and accelerating inflation. And we had three years of double-digit returns. So those outsized returns over the last three years very well could have taken you well above your normal long-term strategic target. If you were a 60, 40 investor, you might have been 70% plus in stocks. We said going into the year, hey, we, we allowed that to kind of run last year. Let's take that off the table, go back to normal. So you're right, you're in the market, but you're not gonna suffer if you did that from regret of trying to be greedy and staying at that upper end. By the same token, when that market pulls back, if you have turned back just a little bit, it's going to give you the confidence to say, you know what, I can step in at the right moment. So you're right. I think hold your ground is, is absolutely appropriate so you don't miss out. But you also aren't overly greedy.
1: Yeah, or or look at some of these, and I, I hate to use the term boring. I don't want to offend their employee base, but companies that are very quiet, like a right? One of the names you like. This is one of these big industrials. Yeah. A mini GE, although maybe better run than GE had been in, in the last few years, they don't do hardly any media. They just kind of grind it out, produce free cash flow, and kind of let yeah. their work speak for itself.
2: Yeah, you have yeah. consistent earnings growth there in life science, life science tools and uh, diagnostics, and then also in water filtration that you know is used in healthcare and, and um, part of the biotech uh, companies and. Uh, You know, benefited from vaccine development and other things, and so it's just nice, consistent growth. I'd also say, Brian, you know, we were kind of laughing last time I was on here about Starbucks. I mean, you got 12% same-store sales growth in Starbucks, and as we go back to work, people are drinking caffeine. Uh, That's another great example. And then we got names like Eli Lilly that are in there. T-Mobile with 30% growth, uh, and yet it's priced at 23 times. It's it's great to be boring again, and we're seeing opportunities in those boring areas um, and it's kind of kind of fun to go back to some old old time you know stock selection in, in those groups
1: yeah that's it donnaher t-mobile starbucks i know a couple other names you like like eli Lilly, we'll get in next time jeff crumpleman boring is the new red hot <laughs> jeff thank yeah. you you're not boring
3: appreciate Thanks, it
1: you. all right on deck climate companies and venture capitalists are gathered in seattle to address the challenge of net zero emissions the summit is hosted by Bill Gates' Breakthrough Energy Group, and he is sitting down exclusively with Diana Olick. coming up next. Plus, business on the ballot. And believe it or not, China may be a huge issue for voters in Ohio. We'll explain how coming up.
4: This is The Exchange on CNBC. All
1: right, important update now, and really a big story. It's probably not getting enough attention elsewhere, especially here in the Northeast and in New England. Price of diesel fuel continues to rise as inventories crash. And by the way, crash is not too strong of a word. Supplies are at their lowest level going back decades. In some cases, you got to go back to the 1950s to find levels this low. It's a real concern for transportation and the economy. And by the way, it could also lead to export bans of refined products like diesel from the U.S. Congress right now has been floating that idea. Now, if they do it, they ban exports from America to Europe. That could help ease some supply issues here. But it could be another blow to Europe, which, of course, been importing more of our diesel fuel as they struggle with shortages. By the way, Something else to watch with fuel, and that is not here but in the Midwest, and that is the low levels of the Mississippi River. Levels there getting dangerously low, and that is already impacting barge traffic. And if that happens, that would worsen some fuel supplies in the upper Midwest. By the way, tomorrow, the CEO, the biggest barge company on the river, really in America, will join us live, talk about exactly where we stand, and if we're going to see more shutdowns in barges on the most important waterway in the United States. All right, let us stick with energy and shift more now to renewables. Some of the biggest venture capitalists in the world are gathering today in Seattle for a first-of-its-kind climate summit. It is hosted by Bill Gates' Breakthrough Energy, which has already funded close to 100 climate-related startups. Diana Olick was invited to cover it. Either that or she just broke in. And she joins us now with billionaire (laughs) entrepreneur and I assume, Diana, you were invited.
5: Yes, we were, Brian. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And thanks, Bill Gates, for joining us. You started Breakthrough Energy seven years ago in an effort to bring together private capital, public funding, philanthropy, all in the fight against climate change. And part of that is a $2.25 billion venture capital fund. Today, you're bringing in some of the big names. Larry Fink from BlackRock, uh, Vinod Khosla, John Doerr of Kleiner Perkins, as well as members of the Biden administration. What are you hoping to accomplish here?
6: Well, with climate, we need to innovate to make the cost of doing it the green way uh, far less than it is today. And the goal of climate is to get emissions all the way to zero. So it's not just cars, but it's planes, it's trains, it's m- cement, it's steel, it's uh, agriculture buildings. So we have to have ways in each of those areas of making it inexpensive enough that not just the rich countries, but the entire world. Uh, decides to get rid of the gigantic level of emissions we have today.
5: Now, when we met a year ago at the United Nations Climate Summit, uh, COP26 in Glasgow, you said it was surprisingly easy to raise capital. Fast forward a year later, we have inflation, we have fast rising interest rates, we have the war in Ukraine, which is putting pressure on gas prices, not to mention a potential recession. How much harder is it now to raise that needed capital? Are you making any deals? Uh,
6: We'll raise uh, additional billions uh, for these funds. I think climate will be uh, affected, but less so than many other areas. A lot of the private sector companies uh, want to understand new climate technologies. Uh, They see that this is going to be a huge growing industry. Um, And we have some success stories, some models of these innovative companies that have made really good progress but yes it'll you'll have to have a stronger pitch some climate companies uh will get out competed by other climate companies but i don't think it'll be a winter where you can't raise capital at all i think uh, a lot of people individually and in corporations are going to make sure we continue to get the the billions we need.
5: But I don't have to tell you, the tech sector has hit pretty hard recently. We saw Microsoft today announce more layoffs. Tech has been such a great supporter in climate. How is bringing tech out of that? Do you feel that we're getting to a bottom, perhaps, and that that will help uh, investing sooner than later, or no? Well,
6: I think the tech companies all all have pretty aggressive plans. uh, And, you know, they'll be pioneering customers, for the storage or cement or the steel solutions uh, that these new companies come out So I don't see any backing off. Um, You know, they're uh, taking a long-term view. You know, they want to be very good citizens. Uh, So their engagement has been super helpful to the uh, funding.
5: Now, in corporate America, of course, and globally, we talk so much about ESG now the e part of that the environmental part there are funds there are people claiming that they are going to offset their emissions by planting more trees et cetera how much is this company talking the talk or do you believe that they're all really walking the walk
6: well the part that i believe in is where you accelerate the innovation and so you know to me it's not so much who you don't invest in it's who you do invest in and there's a modest number of companies that are going to make it uh, uh, the cost of being green, the, the green premium, uh, they're going to drive that down. And you know, so there's, I give people strong points where they're making those investments and becoming customers of those green technologies. So yes, I think the E part, uh, a lot of controversy, but I think there is a way to measure it and that it should be a, one of the factors people look at when they invest in companies. But
5: we don't even have a clear carbon credit market globally yet. I mean, do we need more regulation, at least in the US? Because it seems kind of like this Wild West of climate math going on. Should we start to see that regulation?
6: Well, we're not going to have uh, a carbon tax. Just politically in the US, it's just not likely to happen. You know, we did get three bills that went through Congress. Two were bipartisan. One was a reconciliation bill all of which increase the funding for climate in total about 500 billion extra dollars. Uh, So that is gonna accelerate the movement and drive uh, a lot of the the new technologies to be in the United States. The whole measurement uh, thing is a little immature. So, you know, sometimes people are allowed to count, you know, certain tree planting things that don't last long enough. So they, you know, shouldn't uh, be in there. I think the field is going to get mature on that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think having that environmental incentive, uh, a lot of investors really do want to uh, to get that information.
5: Now, as I said before, Larry, think of BlackRock is here. And I want to get your take on something he said last week, that BlackRock would continue to invest in oil and gas. And he got a lot of criticism for that. But he also got criticism from the other side for being too climate forward, that is Louisiana divesting in BlackRock. How hard is it for folks like him and folks like you who are investing to get this kind of criticism no matter what you do?
6: Well, BlackRock and Larry in particular are a great example of private sector leadership. You know, anyone who says that climate shouldn't be a factor in how you evaluate the future of a company, you know, isn't, uh, that's not capitalism because companies that have emissions, you know, they are going to be subject to uh, border adjustment tariffs or taxes Uh, you also have to think about companies you know if you're dealing with uh, severe weather events that's got to be factored in is the company ensuring that are they becoming more resilient so the attacks are kind of illogical because climate does affect the economy which does affect investments the idea that we still need oil and natural gas is also you know fairly clear we're not going to drain all the money away from those sectors that's how people get to work today it's how people avoid freezing to death in the winter uh, and you know people did get a little optimistic about how quickly the transition could be done now without uh the russian natural gas being available in europe uh you know we're it's a setback you know we need to find non-russian hydrocarbon sources to substitute for those so there's coal plants running and Uh, variety of things uh, because, you know, keeping, you know, people warm, uh, keeping those economies in decent shape uh, is a priority. Now, on the other hand, it's good for the long run because uh, people won't want to be dependent on Russian natural gas. uh, So they'll move to these new approaches more rapidly.
5: And you talk about companies protecting themselves. What do you think about the Fed stress testing banks for climate?
6: I'm not an expert on that. Um, We should understand, you know, for all the uh, events that can take place, is our financial system robust against these things? Uh, You know, probably people didn't think about a pandemic uh, beforehand, you know, and that, of course, meant that we weren't as ready as we should be. Um, You know, I think that driving innovation with some incentives like the tax credits that the U.S. has now, that's the right policy mix. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about should permitting be faster or not. Uh, that'll be important because all of the uh, clean approaches require a lot more transmission and you know building new projects. So it's good that that's at least being looked at to, to not slow things down.
5: And you were a, a big part of that Uh, bill being passed that is the inflation reduction act with all billions of dollars toward climate you also announced last year breakthrough energy catalyst which not only brings in that public funding but also puts names together like american airlines bank of america gm microsoft of course and shell to innovate in four different sectors of sustainable aviation for one thing and direct air capture what is the progress on that so far and how much has the ira helped that
6: well those tax credits are targeted Uh, A lot of them at new areas like green hydrogen or direct air capture uh, that have been the very tough areas. And so that'll mean that the new companies are building projects here in the U.S. Uh, The infrastructure bill provides some funding for that. Uh, The breakthrough energy effort called Catalyst, you mentioned, will fund some of those projects so that we can make sure they're picking the right technologies that can become very low cost so it's part of the whole theory of rolling these things out and getting their price to come down like solar energy did or the lithium ion batteries we need that for seven or eight other technologies uh, to get at the whole scope of emissions so the combination of these new bills plus private efforts like breakthrough energy catalyst mean you're going to You're going to get to go to a lot of plant openings where people say, "Okay, this is green steel, this is green cement, this is green hydrogen. Uh, And a lot of those will be placed in places where the hydrocarbon jobs are going away so people will get a sense that this is a, a just transition.
5: I could talk about this for the rest of the day, but unfortunately we don't have the time. Bill Gates, thank you so much for joining us. Brian, back to you.
1: Diana Olick and Bill Gates, thank you very much. Great stuff. All right, coming up, it has been a disaster of a year for Netflix investors. The stock is down $450 a share in a year. So will tonight's results turn that around? That's ahead. But as we take a quick break, here are the Dow leaders. Goldman Sachs doing great. You got Intel. Can't get out of its own way. So the worst performer yet again. The exchange is back right after this. All right. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets right now are higher off the highs. Dow's high was 652. We're up 1%. NASDAQ up 1% as well. Nice little rally. Last couple of sessions for the overall markets. All right. What about individual stocks for the cruises? They're cruising. Carnival, Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, all up more than 6%. Check this out. Carnival Cruise Lines actually having its best month since February of 2021. Right as the vaccines rolled out. Also higher. Defense and Aerospace, they are rallying today after Lockheed Martin beat earnings, helped by its F-35 fighter jet sales. That stock on pace for its best day since March of 2020. By the way, company's CFO will be on Power Lunch at the top of the hour, 2 p.m. Eastern time with Morgan Brennan and Tyler with more on the quarter. I reference Tyler. Let's go to the aforementioned Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update.
4: And here I am. Brian, thank you very much, and here's what's happening right now. Across France, strikes calling for wage hikes to keep up with inflation are spreading to more and more industries. In Paris, protesters tore down a metal barrier and faced off with police in riot gear. Regional train traffic cut in half. Classes in some schools have been disrupted as well. Back home in Ohio, two people have died after their plane crashed into the lot of a car dealership. Eyewitness video shows flames and smoke at the scene of the crash. Authorities say no one mercifully on the ground was hurt. The philanthropist Mackenzie Scott has given $85 million to the Girl Scouts of the USA and 29 of its local branches. It is the largest gift in the organization's history. The Girl Scouts say they will use the money to recover from the pandemic and improve science and technology education for its members. On the news tonight, the White House trying to discourage American businesses from working with Saudi Arabia and how some U.S. generals and admirals have already taken jobs with the kingdom. That's tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern. Brian, back to you. That should help geopolitical relationships.
1: Yep. Tyler, thank you. All right, still ahead, the neck-and-neck fight for the Senate in Ohio and why China may play a big role in the outcome. Stick around. All right, welcome back. We are just three weeks away from the midterm elections. The control of Congress hangs in the balance. Thirty five Senate spots are up for grabs, and there are really a few critical races to watch across the country, including the race for Ohio's open seat. Let's get out to Elon Moy with the latest there and why China may emerge as a key issue for Ohioans. Connect the dots, Elon.
7: Yeah, Brian, you're right. The race for Ohio's open Senate seat has been a nail biter. Democratic candidate Representative Tim Ryan and Republican J.D. Vance traded volleys during their debate in Youngstown last night. They clashed on everything from guns to abortion to immigration. But there's one issue they actually agree on. The need to be tough on China and bring jobs and manufacturing back to the U.S. And in fact, they try to out each other.
8: If we don't do it, you know who's going to dominate these industries? China,
6: and we can't have it. If you were half Staking as good of a legislator as you pretend to be, Youngstown wouldn't have lost 50,000 jobs, and those steel workers would not be coming up to me telling me you failed them.
7: But China is not just an adversary. It's also a big investor in Ohio. According to state data, China has a stake in 34 businesses and employs about 5,600 people. Chinese foreign direct investment in Ohio? totaled $1.7 billion at the end of 2020. And that doesn't include the new $900 million Semcor factory that broke ground this summer to make EV battery film separators. So, Brian, whoever wins this race will have to balance their current rhetoric against some of the market realities. Back over to you.
1: Yeah, there is. I mean, and certainly Youngstown, I think, was probably the place to highlight it. I mean, you go up to sort of northeastern Ohio, Cleveland-ish, Erie, Pennsylvania. War in Ohio, that whole region really has been decimated with jobs. Where do you think this might rank with people, though, Alon? I mean, if you go after China, is that going to be a, a selling point?
7: Yeah, it's really interesting because I think this is a very salient point in Ohio. Uh, Tim Ryan has made this part of the centerpiece of his campaign, even uh, putting out ads that angered some people in the Asian-American community because of some of the rhetoric he used, saying, blankly, Point blankly, it's us versus China in some of his advertising. So I think because of the job losses and because of the challenges that the Rust Belt has felt over the past two decades, longer than that, that's one of the reasons why yeah. trade and jobs is such a big issue, particularly in Ohio.
1: Yeah, I, I think people hopefully are smart enough to realize that gov- going after the Chinese government is not going after the Chinese people. Chinese people have nothing to do with it. It's the Chinese government that makes all the decisions there. So big difference there. Elon Moy, thank you very much. All right. So while the two Ohio candidates, Vance and Ryan, battle it out over China, your next guest says the election is going to come down to, quote, gas and groceries. Joining us now is Libby Cantrell, head of public policy at PIMCO. And Libby, I don't know if you saw it yesterday, New York Times new poll. I posted it out as well. Forty four percent of likely voters surveyed by The New York Times and others said the most important issue for them was the economy and inflation. Forty percent. Four percent. The next highest was State of the Democracy at eight percent, and then everything else was you know a couple of percent. Were you surprised by that?
3: Yeah, I mean, Brian, in some ways, uh, some ways no, in some ways yes. I mean, if you um, if you just think about what's happened with gas prices over the last year, up, you know, 10 percent. Grocery prices up 13 percent. This sort of axiom in politics uh, is an adage for good reason. Uh, Gas and groceries do kind of weigh on voters. It's it's ever-present in terms of what voters see and what they experience. So in many ways, no, I'm not surprised that this is polling as sort of the top issue. I think what is surprising, um, just given what's happened over the last in a few weeks last few months In light of the Roe decision, um, it looked like abortion rights were kind of right up there with with the economy and with inflation. That has receded. So I think that might be what is surprising about that polling. There was a lot of fervor, a lot of enthusiasm about that particular issue in August that does seem to have been receded and supplanted again by the good old gas and groceries.
1: Well, you know, I'm not a huge believer in polls. I think we've learned in the last decade or so, Libby, that a lot of the polls maybe aren't worth the paper quote unquote paper they're written on. That said, that said, if you believe this poll, to your point, abortion obviously an extremely emotional and passionate topic for many, but it only came in at 5%. Climate change, I think, was 3%, and COVID was 0.5%. In fact, COVID actually was a hash mark among certain age groups. I mean, this is an economy and economic related election. That's it.
3: I mean, yes. Yeah, so I mean, right, James. Going back to James Carville and, and the saying, "It's the economy, stupid." I mean, the economy again still looms large. Now, Brian, we should just caveat and put that that one poll into broader context. That is just one poll. Some of the other polling does show that some of these other social policies are really important, particularly for Democrats, um, as it relates to abortion rights and also in in terms of gun control. The other thing I would just sort of point out here, Brian, which is important. Yeah is is on sort of the enthusiasm issue, because what we've seen is that Democrats have actually, in terms of their enthusiasm, their engagement around the midterms, that has increased very significantly over the last few months. That does seem like it is related to, again, this yeah. Roe v. Wade decision. Um, so, again, it still could impact it could still could impact and inform the election outcome, but may not be showing up in some of the polling that uh, you're seeing. Well, sending. let's
1: talk about. Po- I was looking at a bunch of polls last night. As a matter of fact, I was looking, you know, and of course, the, the polls vary. You know, one one poll will show some guy up seven points. The, the, another poll will show the same person up two points. Pennsylvania obviously looks looks like it's closing in. Ohio is very close. But what was shocking to me, Libby, were a few things. Number one, Oregon may elect a Republican governor. She's leading for the first time in, what, 40 years. Nevada now is leaning toward the Republican Senate candidate. And is it even possible that New Hampshire could go Republican? I mean, these were not things we talked about with any seriousness two months ago.
3: Yeah, although, although I will say that in June, a couple, you know, you know, four months ago, we were talking about that. I mean, it, it seemed like New Hampshire was definitely in play. It seemed like Nevada was definitely in play. Again, I think Democrats sort of got their hopes up um, that, given some of the legislative achievements of President Biden and given that Roe v. Wade decision, that those concerns were in the rearview mirror. But as you point out, they were not. Again, the economy, gas, and groceries uh, are looming large. I think from. From kind of a market's perspective though, Brian, and sort of zooming out on that. The most important thing, A, is control of the House. That uh-huh. looks like, regardless of what the margin is, it looks like Republicans will take back the House. And then Senate control, that's probably a toss-up, because to your point, this polling is imperfect. Uh, and with all of these really important Senate races, whether it's Ohio or Pennsylvania or Nevada or Georgia, or Georgia, all of them are polling within a margin of error. That is a toss-up. But from a markets perspective, control of the House by Republicans or control of the House and yep. the Senate does doesn't make that much of a difference. It's really the house is the most important in terms of the gridlock and the and the over and the is oversight that we quickly, see. With the Biden administration. I'm going to poll yeah. Libby
1: Contrill. What, what's the, yeah. what's the odds that between Pennsylvania and Georgia we will not have an outcome the day after Election yeah. Day? Yeah.
3: And I would zoom, I would, I would zoom in on, on Georgia in particular. Of course, one candidate has to get a 50% threshold in that election in order to stave off a runoff. Yep. That seems difficult. That means that we won't know, maybe, until the direction of the, the Senate until December 6th, which is when the runoff for, uh, for Georgia would be.
1: Whoever loses, I guarantee you that side is going to say there was something wrong with the 100% chance. Libby Cantrill, PIMCO, thank you very much. Thanks. All right, up next. He has spent 25 years on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. But now he's here, right there, at CNBC headquarters. Bob Pisani revealing the lessons he has learned in his new book, Shut Up and Keep Talking. It's out today. We're going to hear from the man himself after this. Bob, I see him. him. I want to show you shares of Twitter. They're higher right now. There's a report out that the company is going to lock employee stock accounts in, quote, anticipation of a deal. So perhaps this Elon Musk deal for Twitter may be going through. Twitter shares up about 2% to 51.62. All right, let's introduce a man who needs no introduction. He's a legend to CNBC viewers. He's a legend at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob Pisani celebrating 25 years down at the exchange. And in that time, he has learned a lot. So right now, he is here with us at CNBC HQ with the release of his new book, Shut Up and Keep Talking, Lessons on Life and Investing from the Floor of the NYSE. Bob, it's great to have you on. Great to be here. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. We don't want to give it all away because we want people to buy the book. Because you've got an extensive tie collection to support, my friend. I've got to have you as my agent. That's a yeah, good you don't That's want that. You do not want that. Um,
8: how closely related are the life lessons and the trading lessons? They're very similar. Uh, one of the big lessons is you have to embrace change, technological change. So look at the New York Stock Exchange floor. When I came there in the summer of 1997, there were 4,000 people on the floor. Imagine 4,000 people packed in like sardines. Screaming at each other. It was mostly open outcry. They did 80% of the volume of the New York Stock Exchange happened right on the floor. Today, there's a few hundred people. They do 15 to 20% of the volume. That's technological disruption. That's what happens when you get computers suddenly being able to match orders, to buy and sell. Prices change. You get more efficient pricing, and you could be nostalgic about the floor. I'm a floor guy. I love the New York yep. Stock Exchange floor, but. Time moves on. Technology changes. And we have to embrace change. We have to embrace new technologies. Either that or you just turn into some nostalgic old guy.
1: There was also tourists there in the balcony. Oh, I was yeah. actually there in 99, a little behind you. Um, and it used to be if you got a job at the floor as a runner and you worked your way up, you yep. had to know somebody to get a job. It was a golden ticket. You became, effect- As long as you lasted, right. you effectively became a millionaire.
8: And these people... 90% was, of them went away. It was an
1: elite organization. Hard lesson.
8: It was an elite organization. And, yes, a lot of people never went to college who, went, who worked down there. They came right high school. One case in point, Art Cashin himself, who came really out of high school, never went to college. He always used to say his university was the floor and the bars around the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> There's only one man that has a single chapter devoted to him and him alone, and that's Is Art Is Bobby Cashin. Vans in your book? Bobby Vance, in our book, I just spent closed, many, many years uh, with Art across the street at Bobby Vance. That's where he went. We, the luncheon club at the New York Stock Exchange closed in 2006 when the company went public. The NYC went public. They closed it as a cost-saving measure. And Art and his friends, the, we called them the friends of fermentation, decamped from the bar <laughs> upstairs across the street to Bobby Vance. I love and that. been there ever since, and Bobby Vance just closed a few weeks well, ago.
1: That's, that's sad. I am going to steal that line, friends of fermentation. Very quickly, if there was... um. Somebody comes up to you and says, Bob, I need investing advice. I know you're not going to recommend stocks, but if you had one lesson that you've learned in 25
8: years about investing, what is it? First is the average person is best served staying in low-cost index funds. Secondly, don't ever try to time the market. Don't ever panic. Don't think that you know when to go in and when to go out because the academic evidence is you don't. You make a mistake. Stay invested long-term. This is what we're seeing this year, Brian, very unusual. Down 20% years, almost never happen. They have not 15 times since 1926. And 60% of the time, the next year, you're made whole within a year. Wow. Think about that. 60% of the time. So there's only a few times when it's ever gone past 30% to the downside. Now, why does the market keep going up? Three out of four years. 72% of the time, the S&P 500 goes up every single year. And it's very rare when it drops a lot. So look here. Add these two up. The market goes up. 57% of the time, year over year, look at that, 36 plus 21, but it's only down 10% or more, 12% of the time. This goes back to the 1920s. Why does this happen? Look at this. It's up 72% of the time, year over year. Why? It happens because we have capitalism, and we have capitalism as a ruthlessly efficient allocator of resources. And so if you believe in capitalism, and I do, and I know you do, too— then that's why you got to keep playing this game. If
1: people ask me why does the stock market go up over time so much, I say simple. If it didn't, there wouldn't be a stock market. The reason it works is that it works, and it just continues itself. Shut up and keep talking, Brian. Thank you for having me, Bob Pisani. Thank you. Look forward to the next twenty-five. I will be here. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right, Netflix reporting results in just a couple of hours. We're still a few weeks away from the launch of their ad-supported tier, but what will we see tonight? Talk about it next. Netflix set to report results after the bell, and as always, the street is laser-focused on subscriber growth. Most of all, analysts expecting 1.1 million net ads for the third quarter, 4.1 million for the fourth. But a tough year for the stock. But will the recent announcement of ad-supported tiers help meet Netflix's expectations? Joining us now, Michael Packter, here from Wedbush Securities, and Mark Douglas on set, founder and CEO of ad tech firm Mountain. Michael, start with you. What are your
9: expectations? What would make you happy tonight? Oh, I think anything over a million is good enough. And I think uh, any loss of U.S. and Canadian subs that's fewer than 500,000 is good enough. Um, more people are going to focus on the guide. And, you know, I, I don't think they'll guide to four. I think they'll guide to three because they don't actually know what the, uh, the ad-supported tier is going to going to generate in terms of lower churn. But, I, you know, if they guide to three, good enough, stock doesn't move. If they they need to clarify that the ad-supported tier will generate as much revenue as the subscription tier does. Um, so essentially that means that that ads are gonna generate something like nine bucks, eight or nine bucks a month per wow. subscriber switches. So I'm interested to hear what Mark thinks about that. Well, let's get to it. Mark, what do you
10: think about it? Can they? I mean, will this work? Well, I think the thing to think about Netflix is their problems are on another scale. Like their problems are opportunities for the business. I mean, they're the problems every other streaming service would love to have. They have 100 million people using the service. They're not yet paying for it. Huge opportunity. They have all these people watching over a quarter billion people watching that now they can bring ads into. so I think it's almost not about subscriber growth. It's seeing them monetize these things that were treated as problems earlier this year. Yeah. Now everyone's realizing a big opportunity. If you,
1: Mark, I going to go back to you and then I'll go back to Mike. If you were, if you were Reed Hastings, you're running Netflix. Yeah. Would you rather have a paying subscriber with no ads or an ad-supported free subscriber? Who's going to be more profitable for you ultimately?
10: Well, they both generate somewhat similar revenue. When you look at the new price tier, they're essentially going to be making the same amount of money as the full price tier, meaning the new price tier, the ad-supported tier, except now half the revenue is coming from advertisers and half is coming from the subscriber themselves. Traditionally, Netflix likes that subscription tier, but the growth is clearly going to come from ads.
1: Michael, any indication that Amazon Prime, football, this that new Lord of the Rings thing, which I thought was terrible, by the way. What am I missing on that? Uh, HBO with House of Dragons, that they're taking Netflix customers away? Or do you think
9: there's enough bandwidth? Everybody has everything. Oh, I, I think that what they're actually doing is accelerating churn. And, and I think that there's a ton of recidivism. So I don't think that people sign up for Netflix and then quit and never come back. I think they quit. Every you know six to nine months, and then they come back six to nine months later. Um, and That's I think a terrible that this, business model, though. I mean, yeah, yeah, it is. But it's been the model ever since they started. You know, they stopped telling us about churn maybe in 2014, but it was averaging three to four percent a month. So literally, they lost thirty to fifty percent of their subscribers every single year, and they're obviously winning out yeah. back. Um, the lower, lower-priced ad-supported tier is going to be what your cable company offers you when you when you call and quit. They offer you 30 bucks a month for six months if you don't quit. Netflix now can offer you an ad-supported tier if you don't quit. We did a survey, 25% of all subscribers say they are highly likely to switch to ad-supported, and over 50% of the people who think they're going to quit said they would switch and not quit. Okay. So what you're going to see is a reduction in churn, which means higher net ads.
10: you agree with that, Mark? I think there will be a big reduction in churn, but I think just the monetization, they have these two huge monetization efforts. They introduce this new feature profile where you can now switch your profiles in order to set up to monetize those 100 million people. If I walked in here and told you I was starting a subscription, ser- I was starting a new streaming service, and they had 100 million people using it right now, and I just had to start monetizing it with ads, it would be one of the hottest investment opportunities out there. And that's what Netflix has on the table today.
1: Maybe you will tell us. That. Let's do it. I work <laughs> in TV. I want streaming to work out. You know, yeah. I don't want people to... Sign up, pay for a week, binge watch a show, and then cancel. That's a terrible model. Mark Douglas, Michael Pachter, thank you very much. Netflix numbers out tonight. All right, up next, we're hitting another name reporting after the bell, United Airlines. Phil's got the preview. Next. One more thing before we go. Shares United Airlines are hired today. Head of earnings after the bell. Let's bring in for the key numbers. What are we watching tonight for, Phil? Well, we'll see big numbers for the third quarter, Brian. We're going to see that from all the airlines when they report their uh, earnings results. But really what you want to look at is two things. One, will they give specific guidance for the fourth quarter? And what do they say about demand growing beyond the holidays? Look, we know that there's going to be a lot of people flying all the way up through the holidays. What do we expect in the first quarter? And then there's also the question of, How do you grow in terms of transatlantic? We know that they're expanding their uh, offerings next summer. What's a longer range outlook there? And what about expanding the fleet, especially when it comes to wide bodies? Lots of news surrounding United and a potential order with either Boeing and Airbus. Either one or potentially a split there. Lots to discuss with CEO Scott Kirby. You do not want to miss our Squawk Box exclusive tomorrow morning. But before that, we'll
10: get the numbers after the bell tonight. We'll see what they have to say about the fourth quarter and beyond. Brian, well, back
1: to you. Uh, oh, I'm sure we're going to hit them because I'm filling in for Melissa on Fast Money. Maybe we'll see you again, Phil LeBeau. Thank you. All right, United and Netflix tonight. So we will see you there 5 p.m. Eastern time for Fast Money tonight. We'll see you back here for The Exchange tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern time. In the meantime, I could just eat these nine seconds. Power Lunch starts
2: right now. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.